Hello, it is Thursday, June 15th, 2017, and this is Marketing Live. I am your host, Amy Jorgensen. On today's live broadcast, we will be talking with video experts. In the age of mobile phones and social media, digital video is more important than ever, but producing quality video content doesn't have to be expensive or time-consuming. Our experts will share tips and tricks for filming, editing, scoring, publishing, and tracking video success. We'll hope you'll walk away with ideas and tools you can use right away in your work. Marketing Live is part of a higher ed live network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. Participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using hashtag higher ed live. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com or take higher ed live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, digital, content, design, and more. I'd like to welcome our guest today. We have Jenny Boone, Public Relations and um, at Roanoke College. Welcome, Jenny. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad you're here. We have Diana Williams, Digital Editor, editor and Strategist for the, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Welcome, Diana. Hi. Stumbled through that. My mistake. That's okay. <laughs> we have Jim Goodwin, Digital Media Producer and um, at Washington and Lee University. Welcome, Jim. Hello. We have Lee Graff, Video Producer at Shenandoah University. Welcome, Lee. Greetings. Hello. And we have Tiffany Broadbent Becker, Director of Digital Media for University Advancement, and Lisa Crawford, Director of Video and Multimedia, both at the William and Mary University. Welcome. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, it's definitely Thursday. <laughs> All right, so anyone who is watching, please do not hesitate to ask any questions by using hashtag HigherEdLive. I'll do my best to ask your questions as they come in, and I'm going to start off with a few questions of my own. So let's talk a little bit about um, some free tools that might exist out there. So are there any free and low-cost production and editing tools that you would recommend? Let's start off with Diana. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite subjects because especially being in higher ed, we are all balling on a budget. Um, so one of my favorite tools actually comes as an application with my back MacBook, and that's iMovie. It's so much better than previous versions, um, especially with um, your ability to cut your audio really well to get really quality cuts on it. Um, so I use that quite a bit, even though I have other tools, um, especially for shorter videos. I like to just jump right on iMovie and throw something together. Um, Animoto is also pretty good, and, and it does more like um, slideshows um, than video, although you can do video clips with it. Um, it's no longer free, but it is still pretty low cost um, and easy to use. All of these are, are fairly user friendly too. And then something that I've uh, started um, playing with recently a lot is um, Adobe Spark. Um, now it's free with the first 30 days if you don't already have um, the cloud. But um, if you have uh, the cloud, then you can uh, download the application and use it. And um, I love all of these tools for video productions and editing. Very nice. Do any of the rest of you folks have any tips on uh, any free tools that you use or low cost tools? Um, if you could real quick tell me, what is Adobe Spark? Um, it's pretty new. And it's um, you can do. Um, you can do web pages with it. You can do um, video again. And um, I've done like little microsites for presentations. Um, the video, I will say this about the video tools. It's, it's good if you, um, if you're not trying to tell a specific story. So let's say you just want to do a general marketing piece. Um, it's great for being able to, to grab uh, stock photography, stock video clips. Uh, they have a great music library, so you can throw together something short, but it's not going to be very targeted. Um, so I wouldn't recommend it, again, if you're trying to tell a specific story. But it's great if you're just trying to do something for like social media that you need to just you know spread the word about your brand. It's, it's also one of these things that it's, it's filled with a lot of templates and things like that that make it very easy to put pieces together and very quickly um, put together a small little piece that's not necessarily um, specifically like if you nuance you want to edit something down, but it it's, can be very quick. 
at doing what it does. Absolutely. Very nice. Any other free tips you guys know about? All right, great. I like that. Um, have you guys seen any animation tools out there that you like? I mean, uh, obviously, we can't go all full out on Maya and, and, and having really big production tools. But are there things out there that you do like that are low in cost or that you have used in the past, even if they are costly, that you think have worked well? Um, I, can, I can give a, a quick idea of something that you can find for Final Cut. Um, I, I really like to use a site called Pixel Film Studios, which, which other people may be familiar with. And they've got some very easy to use animation tools within it. Uh, and they, they cost about 30 bucks a plugin. So not terribly expensive, can give that piece, that little bit of extra production value that makes it seem uh, more expensive and higher profile if you need it. Um, we over here, uh, we haven't really used it yet. We've just started playing with it is um, with the Adobe suite, there's a uh, character um, animator that using a camera like the one I'm looking at, it identifies your face and you create a character and it will animate it on how you move and talk, um, animate it automatically, um, which is uh, really kind of cool. We haven't used it in anything we've put out there yet. We've just started playing with it, but it's really cool. It's going to end up being that you're doing the whole uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, you're going to have a little raccoon running around. And <laughs> if I could work on that level, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So when it comes to actually producing something and putting something together, do you have any production tips and, and interview tips to make sure that you're being as efficient as possible? I can share some if you like. <laughs> um, mine are um, more along the lines of interview tips. Um, and um, I've done a lot of different interviews. It, they've been long, longer interviews, kind of sit down interviews, or interviews kind of all, you know, personal on the street kind of things where you're covering events on your campus. Um, but one of the things I think is, is really helpful is to um, meet the interviewer or interviewee before you interview them if you're having a sit down um, because that makes them feel more comfortable with you and you want them to be comfortable on camera. Um, so if you have a chance to just like, you know, go by and say hello to them, introduce yourself before the actual interview, you don't look like a straight, you're not a stranger to them. Um, a few others, um, I definitely suggest that people know their talking points for whenever they're, um, whenever, for whatever interview they're doing. Um, specifically, if you're kind of out on campus, maybe interviewing people um, for just an event that's happening um, because sometimes it's good to know um, what you want to get out of the interviews because you want to know what message you're trying to send with the video. So for example, at Reno College, um, we have had some political candidates visit the campus in the past year and we knew we didn't want the um, videos to be about a certain political stance. So in order to do that, we um, we thought about the kinds of questions we wanted to ask. We wanted it to be kind of more about the student experiences and what they thought about meeting the candidates. So that was kind of where we triggered our questions and like talking points to when we were interviewing them. Um, one other thing about questions is I think you should prepare questions ahead of time, but don't just stick to them, obviously, because you the person might say some things that you um, really want to jump into and include on the video. So don't be afraid to go off your um, question list um, and, and just be, you know, just kind of be open to listening to what they're saying. Um, two other tips I would I would suggest is one, your video editor will love you if you can aim for succinct sound bites when um, you're interviewing people. So just try to listen for those. There are definitely a lot of long-winded um, interviewees, and so make sure that you can you know, make your questions work for them or go back and ask it a different way or say, you know, um, I really enjoyed your answer here, but could you say that in um, one sentence or two sentences, you know, and see how well they can kind of, you know, kind of dial that back a little bit because that helps your video, um, the, the editor, along with just the people watching the video in the long run, because that, that, that's the better audience for shorter answers. Um, and then another thing too, we we found at Reno College is that when you um, when you're doing like a camp an interview of like a one on one interview, a lot of times we might want to introduce the person, um, but a lot of times it's good to introduce that person or have them introduce themselves after you've already interviewed them because they sound more comfortable. So for example, they might they might they say hi, I'm Jenny Boone and I'm an English major, but they might sound much better doing that after the interview is over. So a lot of times we actually have the introduction happen and then we just obviously edit it to be it at the beginning, but they just sound so much more comfortable because they've already sit there and chatted with you. Um, so those are just a few a few suggestions I have. Um, obviously, always be friends with your video editor and your videographer. If you're the interviewer, make sure you guys have a good working relationship because you're going to be working pretty closely together and you want to make sure you get, you know, that you have the same goals in mind. Um, so that's, that's always helpful. Any other thoughts are welcome. <laughs> 
That's smart. Are you guys doing any storyboards or other stuff like that? I think Lee, you're, you're still muted. Yeah, I'm not now. <laughs> I was going to say on the other end of the, the long winded answer is to avoid the yes or no, or the one word answers, because they're not any fun either. Um, cause you don't get anything with them. So we always tell people at the beginning of an interview that, you know, that if we ask you a question, you know, restate the question as part of the answer, you know, you know, what is your favorite color? The answer is not blue. <laughs> it's my favorite color is blue. Right, you you right. want to get them to talk. Yeah, that makes sense. So when are you guys developing storyboards and putting other stuff like that together? So that way you're going in as prepared as possible. And, you know, how are you making sure that before you go in, you're not wasting any time at all? I mean, do you guys have checklists of here's what equipment I need on the day of? We do that depending on the video. Uh, I'll say I'll say that because um, we have certain videos uh, that we pre-plan months in advance. We have a meeting in about a week for um, our Christmas video for this year. Um, you know, trying to be at, trying to be about six months out on that um, because we're we're shooting it throughout the year with things about hey it's you know we always feel that spirit throughout the year so we need to shoot it when there's green leaves on the trees you know not shooting it in November when everything's brown um, <laughs> so that that involved you know some pre planning and doing that but other times when we go out to shoot an event we don't know exactly what that event's going to look like so we just have to shoot it as we go almost news style. So it kind of depends. I agree. I think it just depends on, on the kind of video you're looking for and, and also just how much time you have to do it, you know, because some video shoots can be days and you have a lot of equipment and you're setting up in different different areas. And then, as, as Lee said, when you're just doing kind of on the spot interviews, you mostly just kind of know like you're going to have your um, video, you know, your video person. Um, actually, at, at, um, in Everett College, we also use Snapchat as kind of a, a video interviewing tool. And so we usually have like a Snapchatter and then a video person and then an interviewer. We have like, like kind of a team you just kind of walk around together. I feel like you're improvising there. <laughs> That's a good point. Great. So let's talk a little bit about um, some live video tools. So you talked a little bit about Snapchat. You know, um, I think some of the folks over at William Mary have some good tips on that. So why don't you fill us in a little bit about what you're doing with live video and making sure that you're as efficient and, and productive as possible? Yeah. So William Mary has done probably a good handful of Facebook live videos. Now we've um, we live streamed convocation, uh, or sorry, commencement this past year. We've done, uh, when we had our uh, commencement ceremony last year, uh, the uh, Face of the Nation came and interviewed our chancellor, Bob Gates. And so right after that, we had the opportunity to interview the host of Face the Nation. And that was one of our first Facebook Lives that we did. Um, but the things that we learned from doing that, like that interview was in the Wren building, which is a super old historic building and all of the glorious quirks that go along with that of the Wi-Fi isn't great because it's all brick and you don't really get a very good cell signal in there. So the thing that we learned from that, I was running an ethernet cable from like a supply closet across the floor and then used my laptop as a base station to set up that as the Wi-Fi that was then dedicated to just my phone doing that live stream. But testing is like the biggest lesson that we've learned from all of this is like, Either you can test from your personal account or you can test and create a test page on Facebook. Um, but to just make sure that the lighting's okay, the sound's okay, your internet works and is appropriate. <laughs> um, and having and just pretty much doing a complete dry run of that entire entire video that you want to do uh, beforehand. Um, it's, you know, and sometimes you've learned we can't do a Facebook Live here. It won't work because the usually the internet isn't fast enough. Um, and then Facebook won't even let you start it, but, <laughs> which is like, no, really, I would love to do this. And they're like, sorry, the video, you know, your, your internet connection is not fast enough to support this. Um, but for that interview that we did in the Ren building, I was just holding my phone on top of a tripod and just like hoping that it wouldn't fall over, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh yes, we can get a, you know, a stand for an actual, you know, for a phone that would work a lot better. But uh, one of the other tools that we've used, I guess I could, this could have gone in the free tools section was uh, OBS software. So it's a free download and it works as sort of a video kind of aggregator. So you can have just one stream that's either the camera that's on your laptop or it can be 
a feed in from a proper video camera or multiple feeds from a proper video camera. And you can kind of cut the different video feeds together and have sort of a very professional look and feel with multiple camera angles. You can uh, preload videos in. So if you want to have sort of like an intro video before you start off, we did that uh, for our homecoming parade last year. Uh, we showed a couple of alumni related videos to kick it off while people were waiting for the parade to start. Um, so it's a really great tool. It integrates pretty easily with Facebook. Um, you don't have to buy any software uh, with it and um, has been a really great tool. Can you explain a little bit about how you're pulling stuff in? So when you have all of these different, you know, cameras, are you, um, you know, are they all like cloud-based that you're getting everything organized? Or are you like, is it all, they all have to be linked in one computer? Like, could you do a drone that's up in the air? Like how, how would you, how is it all put together? The ones that we've done have been where it's directly wired into your computer. But um, we were talking before this episode about uh, somebody else that got to use a drone. So I will let them talk about that because that um, sounds awesome. <laughs> well, that was us here at Shenandoah University during our commencement ceremony. The uh, graduates have to walk about halfway across the campus to the tent. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Facebook Live, but I could be wrong on this. Um, I was had other responsibilities at the time. but we funneled the feed from a phantom uh, drone through a system. We had to set up hotspots all along campus, along the route, so that we didn't have an interrupted system so that the people, the parents in the tent could see the students on their way to there. Um, but it, it, took a, it took a few days of planning and testing and making sure that the hotspots were where they needed to be and worked. So. One of the things we have in our office is like just a like a little hotspot that you can use when you travel and stuff like that. I almost would want to take that and just zip tie it to the <laughs> to the drone and have it just fly around. I don't know if that would work at all, but <laughs> all right. What are you saying, Jim? I can't imagine that would work. Uh, the, the payload would be too much. It would start flying all over the place. Um, but something to think about when when doing live events. Uh, if you're at the point where you're using your your the camera on your computer, or you trying to hold your phone still, uh, you might want to just sink a little bit of money into it. Uh, there are things like the live stream Nevo. I don't know if anybody is familiar with the, the Nevo. It is a tiny little 4K camera. Uh, and all you need is that, which can go to live stream or to Facebook Live, uh, and your phone or an iPad, which you likely have in the office, where you can actually set it up so that you have different crops within that 4K frame You've got this one little $400 camera that looks like you have four cameras. Nice. So you could have it in front of, let's say, a panel discussion. You could have tight shots on all four panelists. You could have a wide shot. Uh, and you could do the production from there. It can take an audio in. So if you've got somebody who can maybe run sound for you, you can plug it in. You can do it Wi-Fi, or you can do it wired. So that, there are other kind of cheap cameras that would be preferable to using a phone or uh, you know, an old camera that you've got lying around the office. So if you're just getting into this, it's a, it's a low cost barrier, you know, easy entry into being able to do live events. Uh, there's also things like this, uh, which is a DJI uh, uh, Osmo, which is very similar to what you'd find on a, on a drone. Uh, and this can go direct as well. Uh, and gives you the flexibility of, let's say, we'll, we might not be flying over commencement, but we could walk through commencement. You know, you could actually walk down the way, maybe like kind of following the people or something like that. Uh, so this can also go live to uh, Facebook and to live stream and other providers. And that's and, so much more smooth. Like I'm going back in my mind to like being in high school a million years ago when we had like a person standing on a skateboard as we pushed them really slowly and they're holding the camera trying to like, you know, get that that sweeping shot. Like, I mean, just investing a little bit of money it, yeah. it has such a big difference. And so we got this specifically to be able to give to students so that students can give us footage of use. It's great. That's really smart. So what other kind of tools are you using? Talk a little bit about the, the um, cameras and and lighting and things like that? Because I, I don't think that's something we've addressed. You know, is there, what is so, your preferred tool? We, we use uh, Canon uh, XA25s, which for, in my research at the time where we purchased them, was the cheapest camera with a length control, which essentially lets you zoom on a tripod handle rather than trying to do it on a camera because that's never as smooth. Uh, and also uh, HD SDI, 
uh, right there, which will give you longer cabling options, things like that. So we, we use these. They're not terribly expensive, but if you go through B&H, you get your educational discounts, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, so that's the cameras we prefer to use. And also, they work really well in low light. And I, I think they've, they've, up, they've got a new model out of essentially this camera, which you can also pick up. But we really like those. I'd be interested to know what other people are using. Yeah, what are you guys using? Uh, we're, we're, go ahead. <laughs> we at William & Mary, we're using um, two. We have two C100s, a uh, Sony FS700, uh, and we're hoping to switch to the new Panasonic GH5s just because they're a much smaller system for us to be taking, but still gives us the quality of video that we like. Um, and then we've got we've got our drone, our Phantom 4 Pro. Uh, but the, the, those are the cameras that we use right now. They look they work really well. They look really good. Interchangeable lenses, so uh, that's what we love about them. Uh, the C100s have that wonderful uh, neutral density filters that are built into the camera that are very helpful. Um, the GH5s, when we hopefully move to that, won't have that, but that's what lens filters are for. So that's, <laughs> that's what we're working with right now. Um, at Shenandoah University, we're using um, primarily uh, DSLRs to shoot most of our video with, um, Canon 6Ds at this point in time. Um, although we're beginning our discussion and looking at the new fiscal year at picking up, um, made some different cameras, even some that are more traditional video-like. Um, we have this one Panasonic um, 4K camera, and we've begun shooting a few things with that, um, but not terribly much because, doggone it, we just like the look that DSLRs give um, when you shoot. But um, we have a variety of things that we use. Um, um, some action-type stuff with students. We have some, some of the new GoPros. Um, with our athletic center that's going up right now, we have uh, three of these little time-lapse cameras are constantly mm. rolling on the construction um, going right now. We have to change out batteries or cards on them about every three weeks or so. Um, but it's produced some really neat-looking stuff as the building rises up out of the ground. And um, we just use a whole variety of things. We even use our iPhones in a pinch. <laughs> hey, you say that, but like I, I have a, um, a Google Nexus, and it's, it's a beast. But I get some of the best video on this stuff because it does, you know, if you need something really quickly and you're doing something live, I, you know, sometimes that's easier than having to run back and grab, you know, if you're in the moment. Of course, you want to try and plan better, but <laughs> I was going to say same. I, I use my phone a lot. Um, I've got a Samsung Galaxy S7, um, but I also have a DSLR. So it kind of depends on the situation. Um, I use a Nikon D3200, which is a little bit older, but has a surprisingly good built-in microphone. So I, I very rarely have to use the shotgun if I'm pretty close to my subject, um, which is nice because it means less equipment to lug around. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, you don't have to bring a whole bunch of stuff. I've also found, um, I think it's Cowboy something or other, uh, they have lighting kits on Amazon for like $100 and you get three or four really great lights. It's cheap and you know you really don't have to go spend a fortune if you don't have the money to do to you know just get lighting kits or even some of the microphones you can get you know under $100 and get something that's decent enough to, to serve its purpose. So, um, all right, great. So let's talk a little bit. I think that um, Jim kind of highlighted on this for a moment. Let's talk about music because um, even listening right now, it would be so much better with music in the background. So, so Jim, what, what kind of music tools and stuff are you using? So. Sing for uh, us. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to tweet out a link here of a, a small uh, shared Google Doc. I, my intention was that people would actually visit it and add to it from my last presentation at a conference, but that has not happened. <laughs> um, something that I do want to highlight, uh, which has been clarified to me even more since this past uh, uh, conference, is the fact that licenses are very different depending on who you are licensing from. And one Creative Commons license that, that uh, lets you do non-commercial, no, deriv no derivatives, uh, synchronization, uh, will still consider you commercial, uh, no matter if you are asking for money or not and you work for an institution. Uh, we would always pay the, 
the commercial licensing, essentially, whatever we're doing, like an annual fund ask or something like that. But if you're doing a short news piece or a time-lapse video of students running around or something like that, then you're not really kind of considering it a commercial piece. But the fact that you work for a university and get paid a salary makes it commercial. So uh, that complicates uh, trying to find genuine free music. Uh, and while I do have some, uh, some suggestions on, on the link that I just tweeted out, uh, and it's bit.ly, I can, I can say it out here too. Uh, it is bit.ly uh, CC Music Resources. So you can check that out. Uh, but I really have come to the, to the realization that I'm not going to try to look for free music anymore. There are some options here. Um, but I've exhausted it. Uh, of course, people can go to Free Music Archive. Uh, that has a great search function. Uh, which really lets you try to find the public domain stuff you might know you can use. Um, but even, even people, you really just have to kind of dig even further than Free Music Archive. It's not going to give you the correct license agreement. Uh, if you go to Pottington Bear and you take a look at his license on his website, you find out that, oh, all right, so anybody, if you, again, if you accept a salary, you're no longer non-commercial. And thus, you have to pay $15, which is not a ton of money. Uh, but it is something to take into consideration. Um, what I've actually turned to recently is a website called Artlist, A-R-T-L-I-S-T dot I-O. And the nice thing about that is that it's $200 for the year. Mm. And I have actually been quite impressed with their offerings. Um, a lot of the subscription level ones that I've found are much more expensive and have less interesting stuff. And this is great uh, search functionality for mood, uh, for style, for duration, uh, for tempo, all that stuff. I've been infinitely impressed. I figured if I could get one song out of it to start with that I thought was good, uh, then it was essentially paying for itself because anytime that we have to license something and we go through uh, music bed or something like that, at minimum it's $180. Yeah. So I'm looking at this, is, this could be one song for music bed. If I can find one song in here, then fantastic. And I've been very pleased I've probably used 10 would songs you, um, already. Would you repeat the name again? I, I missed the name. It's uh, artlist, A-R-T-L-I-S-T dot I-O. And it's, it's fantastic. I, I have been so pleased. Uh, so that is, that is kind of a revelation for me in the past uh, two months or so. I've been very, very impressed. Uh, and again, I, I, like there is free music out there. I feel like I, when you start looking for free music, it can take up your entire day. It can be yes. you, can, you can edit the entire video and then be like, "Well, I've got two days left to find a song." Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the worst part is when your client decides they don't like the music that you spent all the <laughs> fine, or sometimes two days, sometimes three days because nothing's working. Um, but just to add add to the list, um, all the music that we we have, we purchase as well. We use AudioJungle.net, Pond5.com. We've used Musicbed a few times. We've run into a few issues with Musicbed uh, just because uh, we there are a few songs that the it wasn't clear at least when we purchased it that if we posted it to YouTube, it would run ads. So you just have to be a little bit careful with that, especially if you don't want those ads to to run. So I think you can adjust that. Uh, all you have to do is uh, they're going to they're gonna flag it within your YouTube account. And then there's a process you can go through where you can upload the, uh, the license that you got from Musicbed, and that'll take off the advertising. I, I had, I, yes, yes, you can. And I've, I've had that issue with Audio Jungle before, and we just copy the license agreement, put it into YouTube, takes it off. But there was one instant with Musicbed where it was just like this really fine print that we didn't notice at the time. And the artist was very specific, or I'm not sure if it was the artist or if it was Musicbed, but it was it was something in there. So you just have to be careful for that fine print that says even something so specific as if you post this on YouTube, it may run ads. So that's just one thing that, that we ran into. But yes, absolutely. If you have the licensing agreement, oftentimes if you copy and paste that right into YouTube, it is no longer a problem. Yeah, well, we've, oh, I'm sorry. We've, also, we've also used songfreedom.com <clears throat> um, as another resource. Um, it's not too expensive for their songs. Some of them are more than others. And it depends on the artist, really. 
Um, but one thing we did run into an issue with one song with a guy just absolutely didn't want his piece of music used with, I don't know, education or something. And um, we eventually just dropped it and said, fine, we're not going to use it. But I ended up in a whole conversation with the president of Song Freedom on the phone um, talking. And, and he talked about fair use type stuff. And he basically said that fair use comes down to um, whatever the artist says it is. If they're willing to let you use the music, you're good. If they don't want you to use it, then it ain't going to happen. <laughs> That's a really good point. And I like that you guys were talking about purchasing music. And and not just in that, like it is important to purchase music so that we are giving the person credit and you're not just stealing something, but also because it takes so much time to go through and sort through the junk that's out there for free. And half the time it's not even worth it. You know how weird it is when you hear other videos that are using your same song and, and it doesn't have the same feel and, and after editing all day long or, or weeks long and then hearing that somewhere else and it's it just like, it's it doesn't have that authenticity that you want. It comes across cheesy and cheap. So sometimes that just $200 makes a huge difference to be able to get something that's quality and that you can put out there. And if you look at the amount of time that you're spending searching through music and trying to find it and, and make sure it's the right fit and make sure the timings work and, and all of that, at a certain point, just spend the 200 bucks, get something that you know is going to be awesome and unique. And it way out, it outweighs the, the, you know, the benefits outweigh the costs. So, and I will add to with some of the resources that we use. So Audio Jungle, most of the time is only you're you're looking at fifteen, nineteen dollars. Awesome. So it's not a huge expense for Pond Five. It ranges, but they give you an opportunity to pick what your price range is. So you can, as you're searching through, you can look through duration as well as price range. So because they have stuff that goes into the hundreds of dollars, but they also have things that are twelve bucks, and you just have to pay attention to what that price is. I think that's a really good point. So let's jump in a little bit about analytic tools because when it comes to doing all of these things and, and you know, how are you making sure that your videos are actually being watched and, and how long they're, they're doing that? So let's, Lee, I think you might be the expert in that. Well, I, I self-proclaimed expert, not really. Um, we uh, here at the at Shenandoah, we uh, started using, we, we put all of our videos on YouTube that go out to the public. And when we do that, I've started in the last couple of years tracking those. I've created my own spreadsheet. YouTube has a fantastic set of analytic tools, but it doesn't tell you everything. So we had to pull the numbers from the website, um, from YouTube, put them into a spreadsheet, and that's where we start dividing things out. We, we track all of our videos in terms of, okay, this, is, this video is a profile of a former student or a current student or a professor. It's a profile video. Here's a video about events. Here's a just a here's just a pure promotional piece about the university or some program or something. And we and we break those down into what type of videos, even who produces them, to um, you know what time of year they are, and seeing and we track them which ones do better than other ones. And we use all that information. Um, to decide to make decisions about what future videos we produce. Um, for example, we uh, we do a, a move-in day video every year. It's one of our most watched videos of the entire year. Huge numbers the first day it's put out and it tracks real well for the rest of the year. So we know, okay, that's a video that we're going to do. Um, there's a few other videos, I won't mention specifically what they are, but they've, we've put them out there and after a month, it's gotten 12 views. And we realize, well, dang, that was hardly worth our time and effort. So maybe we're not going to do that video next year, you know, for this event that comes around. And so we, we use the information to steer how, you know, what videos we're going to produce, which ones we're not going to, and even what types of video, profile videos, promotional videos, um, or whatever, you know, profile videos, actually, no one really, they don't care that much. And it, the question becomes, is it how we do them that we don't make them interesting enough or is it just profile videos don't don't do it for people so. well and then it's not your opinion as to whether or not the video is good or bad it's all about the numbers you know what i mean it's like you can think the video is amazing it's really interesting but you know it's like hey just people aren't watching it yeah it, it becomes very apparent that this video 
I mean, I, I'll say I've put out a few things that I thought were awesome and it just didn't do anything. No one cared. And it became a question. I mean, why is it? I mean, is it just my awesome isn't that awesome? Um, or is it a matter that um, we we just put out our, our commencement video this year? And one thing we noticed is that I was tracking much lower than previous years. And we just figured out in the last couple of days that we had forgotten to produce a, a letter from the president um, where the video is embedded into it. Um, and we had done that the last couple of years and we didn't do it this year. And we noticed, oh my gosh, we lost you know half of our views because we didn't do this one thing. But we picked up on it because the video numbers were running so much lower than normal. Um, so, so we use that information to, to track things, figure out why things are happening the way they are or not, and, and so forth. And like I said, YouTube has a lot of great tools for that, but we've had to create our own spreadsheet where we pull the information and get to manipulate the information in a way that tells us more than even YouTube does. What information are you measuring? Are you measuring just how many people have viewed it? Are you measuring the length in which they viewed it? Um, all that. Um, we track um, not only how many views, but um, how long the videos get watched. So we watch the percentage of videos. Um, we find out, like, I mean, it makes sense. We put out a 30-second video. You know, we can pretty much guarantee that 90% of that video, on average, gets watched. You know, because people don't have time to turn it off. It's only 30 seconds long. But we can put in a six-minute video, and yeah, if, we're, if they're average is that people are watching it 60% of the video, we feel pretty good about that. Because in any video, you're always going to, you're never going to reach that 100% because there's always going to be those people who click on video, it starts, they get five seconds into it and they're like, oh, that's not what I wanted, stop. So, but we feel pretty good about those. The interesting thing is, is that we have found that the videos that get watched the most for us, the ones that generate the most hits, aren't the shortest videos. They um, are videos between four and six minutes long. And actually, the length of time that people watch videos over the last five years has been it gradually increasing every year. I think conventional thinking is that shorter videos are better, but yet the length of time that people watch them um, has been increasing for the last five years. Every single year, the amount of time that people watch, spend time watching them has gotten longer. Um, and the longer videos actually get watched more often. Mm -hmm. As so, long as they're interesting, they'll, they'll watch them. Yeah, but it was, it was kind of a surprise to us because we were thinking, go shorter. Mm -hmm. And and actually, the trends aren't going that direction. It really kind of surprised us when we started looking at the numbers over the last five years. Well, this is a beautiful transition. We have a question from Eric Healy. Thank you, Eric. Um, he's curious about the average video link with um, for each of the panelists. So what are some of the subjects that you have and um, you know how long are you making these videos? Because that's something they're always discussed, like in the departments. You know how long should they be make, making their videos? So let's start off with Diana. How long are your videos typically? Um, well, it really depends. So um, I work for a history podcast, and so a lot of the videos that we make um, are either about a moment in history, or we're taking something from the show and and we're building visuals around it. Our goal is um, thirty to sixty seconds, though, um, because even though our show is never dry, <laughs> I mean, you know, after a while, you're like, okay, next. <laughs> so unless the um, unless the story really warrants it like ultimately the goal is to tell the story and to tell it in an engaging way um so every once in a while like we did a video on the displaced residents um or the residents who were displaced for shenandoah national park Mm -hmm. That video was like, uh, I think it was close to two minutes, um, but it was also one of our, it actually it was our most successful video on social media, um, but because the story just couldn't be told in a minute or less. Um, and our live streams, um, we don't really, it depends on whether we get through all of the questions, how many audience questions we decide to take. Typically, they're never more than 30 minutes. And then we also live stream our live shows. They tend to be like 90 minutes. Um, but on average, 60 seconds is where we top out. That's great. Thank you. Jenny. 
Um, I would say it, it does depend on the kind of video you're doing, but um, we found that I think the magic the magic uh, amount of time is about two minutes or less, um, depending on what we're doing. If it's a if it's a um, like more of a profile kind of interview with like a student or someone, that usually would maybe go to about two minutes. Um, but anything that is more kind of a quick coverage, like on campus type thing, we would definitely try to keep it under two and probably close to like one and a half maybe. Um, so that's the general general guide. Thanks, Jim. Um, so uh, we, we have to make a compelling argument to go over five minutes normally. Um, but it, again, it, it always depends on what we're trying to do. If it's, if it's supposed to be a quick thank you, then we're not trying to keep you there for a long time. But if it's about a program, then that's usually a little bit more substantial. And that's also something that might get played uh, on a digital sign in the building that we're talking about. So we kind of have a little bit more of a captive audience who might be standing around to watch it. Uh, so those can go a little bit longer. But uh, things that we are specifically making for Facebook, uh, we've been doing these little quick hit videos about student experiences and different events on campus. And those are a minute to two minutes. Excellent. Lee? Well, I can, I can say I pull up my analytics sheet here. I'm looking and I love he's using the data. <laughs> I'm, looking right, I'm looking right at it. Um, the, the funny thing is, is that when you compare things between how long someone watches the video, the average percent viewed, compared to how many times they're being watched, our target range we're finding is about two and a half minutes. That's where the, that's where the lines kind of cross between how often someone's watching a video and then how long they're watching it. They cross at about the two and a half minute. And, we, and most of our videos are actually put out in the two to four minute realm. So we're, we're generally hitting that area. Wonderful. Thank you. What about our uh, wonderful experts from William & Mary? Well, I think it really just depends on, on like everyone else said, what uh, the video is and how best to tell your story. Um, we have a lot of videos that we produce for events that end up as social media posts. Um, so those are typically a little bit longer ranging in the two to three minute time frame. If we know we're posting something specifically to social media, then we usually keep it a little bit shorter. So for example, we have what's called the William & Mary 30, which are supposed to be just 30 second videos to showcase something around campus in 30 seconds. Um, and then we have our William & Mary Now series, and that can range to, uh, uh, up to two minutes usually, but nothing longer than that. Uh, but it just, it just depends. Recently, uh, we had a commencement video that profiled three students. That video was four and a half minutes, and it was sent primarily through direct emails to some of our donors, and that got 1,500 views on YouTube, and that was without the social media posts at all. Um, so. It just depends on where it's going and what you think your audience is going to actually be interested in watching as well. That's also a really good transition. We have a question from Chris Swingle Farnham, who wants to know, do our videos, uh, do your videos live mostly on YouTube? How are, how are the audience getting to see them? So uh, something other than social media. And um, do you have any thoughts about the pros and cons of colleges putting videos on your college websites, you know, pulling them from YouTube? Let's jump in with Lisa again. I mean, I think for William and Mary, I mean, we'll put them pretty much everywhere. I, they sort of the repository is YouTube, but I mean, you always want to make sure to natively upload it to Facebook. And if you're if that's something that you can cross post with other pages. So at William and Mary, we have the Alumni Association and the and the top level William and Mary page, and uh, our news uh, folks also have an a Facebook page. So we make sure that any of the videos that we're posting are available to cross post and that allows you to aggregate all of those stats so you can actually see more holistically. It wasn't just, you know, the 5,000 people that viewed it on my page. It was also the 10,000 people that viewed it on the main William and Mary page and things like that. So it's a good way to get a better grasp of how the video was received. Um, we'll natively upload it to Twitter if it's short enough. Um, Sometimes we'll do our Instagram videos, but as long as it's sixty seconds or less, yeah, it's like you just keep compressing the time more and more. Um, but embedding videos, we'll do that definitely for live streams when we do commencement or convocation or anything like that, and we want to make sure that if we're not doing it on Facebook Live or if we're doing it on Facebook Live and 
um, a, a YouTube live stream that there is a page that people can go to so that um, we can just kind of direct everybody there, shows them the hashtag that they should use if they're posting on social media and kind of provide one central spot for folks to go. Um, so I think embedding the videos, I mean, you can embed Facebook videos now too on a web page. So depending on where you want to go uh, with that, um, those are all different options. Yeah, I think what we, just to add to what Tiffany was saying, what we've learned about our audience is that they're mostly watching our content through social media or direct links from emails. So they're not just randomly going to our YouTube page to see any of our content. So the YouTube views that we are getting, we know it's because we sent it in an email or because it's sitting on a website that gets a lot of hits. But yeah, if, if we see that our YouTube numbers are going up, it's because we know that that was a featured video in an email. Uh, outside of that, then we're, we're mostly primarily on our social media channels, Facebook being the largest. Yeah, the only YouTube channel that I go to often is Lip Sync Battle. But other than that, like, you know, I, don't, I think you're exactly right. Most people are kind of going around and playing around and see what gets sent to them. They're not going specifically to one area. Does anyone else have anything different in how you're, um, you know, where you're posting your information and putting it in stuff? I think, you know, at the University of Virginia, at least for my department, we do the exact same thing. We share the content and in many, as many different platforms and as many different ways as we can, because I think increased exposure is nothing but good. You know, I, I think you're exactly right. We also use, um, we upload our videos to Vimeo as well. Um, so we have like, we have direct links to our Vimeo page um, on our, on the main website along with the YouTube channel. So it kind of, you can go either way, but a lot of times those are used as embedded links into, you know, new stories or things on the website. But it really, it's like what um, the others said, pretty much everything is pushed out via social media and that's how people are finding it. Um, and then it's linked to all these different areas where they can find it. Yeah, and as long as it's relevant content, I don't see why it couldn't be shared on, you know, your university web pages and things like that. And, and so we use, uh, sorry, you can go Lee. Well, I was just going to say, we use YouTube as our primary um, upload place for all our videos. Although we have begun using Vimeo for videos kind of that are not directly for public consumption. Um, every so often, you know, we're, we're going to thank a particular donor or a donor's family for, for something. And we, uh, we're starting to put videos there because it can provide a, a better link that doesn't um, while you can put a unlisted or private video on YouTube, it skews all of our numbers in our analytics because you get this video that's only been viewed 10 times um, and it's, it pulls all of our numbers down and it's like, come on, yeah. <laughs> can, we, uh, can we do something different with the ones that aren't going out to the public? And so we've been done using um, Vimeo for things like that. Yeah, we, we use uh, prim uh, Vimeo as our primary source. Uh, YouTube is, is for things that we wouldn't mind people finding in search. Uh, anytime that we do anything for the annual fund or something like that, then that's going into Vimeo. It might be in a, a, a hidden link or you know private link or something along those that nature. Uh, I also prefer Vimeo because you're not going to get the advertising. So anytime that we yes. anytime that we put uh, an embedded video on our web page, we don't have uh, well, then. You know, we'll do a Vimeo and we won't have any ads. And you also can't control what ads get played on your, on your uh, video. And, uh, I mean, we've had ads come onto uh, YouTube that then people have told us that they were offended by. And we're like, well, we have nothing we can do about that. <laughs> uh, and it's also very nice. Vimeo is nice in that we don't want to be producing Blu-rays and DVDs of graduation. Uh, so I can check the box that says let them download it. And it's yep. super easy to let them download it. I go, you can download your copy off video, and I don't have to waste my time making a bunch of DVDs. And uh, also, who's using DVDs anymore? You know what I mean? Like, I, it's like no one, no one collects that stuff anymore. It's, people much would prefer to be in the cloud. Sure. Yeah, and and I, I like Vimeo for that for sure. I still buy Blu-rays. Uh, I still I buy records. <laughs> I buy Blu-rays. I like the physical object. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not one to talk about. I definitely do it because like the cover art's pretty cool, but honestly, it sits on a shelf. And then like I'll even like I'll have the movie up on the shelf, and I see it in Netflix. And I'm like, oh, I might as well watch that. Like that, I, I forgot that I own that, and I love that movie. I should watch it. But that's just me being lazy. <laughs> well, and I'd love to ask real quickly the the wonderful experts from William and Mary. Um, you talked a little bit about your strategy when it came to um, uh, content development and and leveraging surveys. Could you highlight a little bit on that? 
Sure, I think one example of that is we recently, it was about a year ago, we did a survey that was for our alumni audience, specifically about the magazine that we produce. Um, so there was a presentation about what that survey put and uh, my team was sitting there and it was interesting how some of the content that they wanted to see in the print magazine we thought would translate well to social media. And one of the things they talked about was, uh, you know, our William & Mary alums have a lot of pride and they like knowing what the other William & Mary alums are up to, um, what are things they can brag about that are ha that's happening on campus, but, like from research to any traditions to what other alums are doing. So we took that information and we said, you know what's kind of popular right now on social media? Those now this videos. So we created what we call the WM Now, and it's really just a short glimpse at something for us to kind of brag about. So one of our most recent ones uh, was a WM Now on Glenn Close. We actually uh, had an opportunity to do a Q&A with her for a William & Mary weekend we did in New York. Well, she's on Sunset Boulevard right now. So, so cool. <laughs> we took that opportunity because we already were get, we were getting the footage for another video, and we said, let's take this footage and do a highlight of Glenn Close, Sunset Boulevard, and William and Mary. So we did that, and recently um, we have an alum, a young alum, a class of eleven, Caitlin Clements, who's a co-producer for Dear Evan Hansen. And we called her earlier this week. We said, hey, congratulations on the Tonys. Can we do a quick phone interview and make a short video about that? Has not been released yet, but uh, it's just an opportunity to one, take footage that you're already getting and you know those little interview segments that you can't use. How can you turn that into something that might be newsworthy for your audience on social media? Because I think well, the first one we did, we were interviewing William Ivy Long. It just happens that all my examples are theater people, but I promise <laughs> we have more than just that. But William Ivy Long was doing the costumes for the live uh, Rocky Horror Picture. Cool. So uh, we were interviewing him for something completely different, but we had this one nugget of the interview that we just love the quote. And we were like, well, where can we use this? throw it on social media, we packaged it as a promotional piece for Rocky Horror Picture Show and put it up. So um, it's a way for us to, to kind of brag about our people, uh, use content that we're already getting and use it quickly. So, and also sometimes you don't have to have the same production value for social media, for just a sh short social media like that, that you would for most of the things that we produce. So uh, that's a, an example of how a survey directly influenced our social media strategy and how also just trying to utilize content in other ways can impact what kind of video series we start doing. And the other thing with this is that uh, we were definitely inspired by like what content is popular right now? How are people watching video on social media? And a lot of the time, they're on their phones without the sound on. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these videos have, are much more sort of graphic intensive and have more words on them. So you can watch it without the sound and still get the gist of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So that's been a great thing. I, like Facebook Live now has closed captioning options and stuff. So that opens up a whole new world for that. But you know, for the produced videos, having something where you don't necessarily need to have the captions on to be able to understand what's going on is really important and can help like grab those you know, grab your audience's attention um, as they're scrolling through their feeds. That's an excellent point. Well, I'd like to thank you all so much for all of your expertise. I think we're at time now. So um, again, I, I've learned a whole lot and I know we've got some good feedback on Twitter that a lot of folks have gotten some really interesting ideas. And also thank you always to our program sponsor, M. Stoner, and we will see you all next time.